0: section three of montcalm and wolfe by francis parkman this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter one part three the four northern colonies known collectively as new england were an exception to the general rule of diversity the smallest rhode island had features all its own but the rest was substantially one in nature and origin the principal among them Massachusetts may serve as the type of all it was a mosaic of little village republics firmly cemented together and formed into a single-body politic through representatives sent to the general court at Boston its government Originally theocratic now tended to democracy ballasted as yet by strong traditions of respect for established worth and ability as well as by the influence of certain families prominent in affairs for generations yet there were no distinct class lines and popular power like popular education was widely diffused Practically, Massachusetts was almost independent of the mother country. Its people were purely English, of sound yeoman stock, with an abundant leaven drawn from the best of the Puritan gentry, but their original character had been somewhat modified by changed conditions of life. A harsh and exacting creed, with its stiff formalism, and its prohibition of wholesome recreation, excess in the pursuit of gain, the only resource left to energies robbed of their natural play, the struggle for existence on a hard and barren soil, and the isolation of a narrow village life, joined to produce in the meaner sort qualities which were unpleasant and sometimes repulsive. Puritanism was not an unmixed blessing. Its view of nature was dark, and its attitude towards it one of repression. It strove to crush out not only what is evil, but much that is innocent and salutary. Human nature so treated will take its revenge, and for every vice that it loses, find another instead. Nevertheless, while new england puritanism bore its peculiar crop of faults it produced also many good and sound fruits an uncommon vigor joined to the hardy virtues of a masculine race marked the new england type the sinews it is true were hardened at the expense of blood and flesh and this literally as well as figuratively, but the staple of character was a sturdy conscientiousness, an undespairing courage, patriotism, public spirit, sagacity, and a strong good sense. A great change, both for better and for worse, has since come over it, due largely to reaction against the unnatural rigors of the past. That mixture, which is now too common, of cool emotions with excitable brains, was then rarely seen. The New England colonies abounded in high example of public and private virtue, though not always under the most prepossessing forms. They were conspicuous, moreover, for intellectual activity, and were by no means without intellectual eminence. Massachusetts had produced at least two men whose fame had crossed the sea, Edwards, who, out of the grim theology of Calvin, mounted to sublime heights of mystical speculation, and Franklin, famous already by his discoveries in electricity. On the other hand, there were few genuine New Englanders who, however personally modest, could divest themselves of the notion that they belonged to a people in in an especial manner the object of divine approval. And this self-righteousness, along with certain other traits, failed to commend the puritan colonies to the favor of their fellows then as now new england was best known to her neighbors by her worst side in one point however she found general applause she was regarded as the most military among the british colonies this reputation was well founded and is easily explained more than all the rest she lay open to attack the long waving line of the new england border with its lonely hamlets and scattered farms extended from the kennebec to beyond the connecticut and was everywhere vulnerable to the guns and tomahawks of the neighboring french and their savage allies the colonies towards the south had thus far been safe from danger New york alone was within striking distance of the canadian war parties that province then consisted of a line of settlements up the hudson and the mohawk and was little exposed to attack except at its northern end which was guarded by the fortified town of albany with its outlying posts and by the friendly and warlike mohawks whose castles were close at hand. Thus New England had borne the heaviest brunt of the preceding wars, not only by the forest, but also by the sea, for the French of Acadia and Cape Breton confronted her coast, and she was often at blows with them. Fighting had been a necessity with her, and she had met the emergency after a method extremely defective, But the best that circumstances would permit having no trained officers and no disciplined soldiers and being too poor to maintain either she borrowed her warriors from the workshop and the plough and officered them with lawyers merchants mechanics or farmers to compare them with good regular troops would be folly but they did on the whole better than could have been expected, and in the last war achieved the brilliant success of the capture of Louisbourg. This exploit, due partly to native hardihood and partly to good luck, greatly enhanced the military repute of New England, or rather was one of the chief sources of it, the great colony of virginia stood in strong contrast to new england in both the population was english but the one was puritan with roundhead traditions and the other so far as concerned its governing class anglican with cavalier traditions in the one every man woman and child could read and write in the other sir william barclay once thanked god that there were no free schools and no prospect of any for a century the hope had found fruition the lower classes of virginia were as untaught as the warmest friend of popular ignorance could wish new england had a native literature more than respectable under the circumstances while Virginia had none. Numerous industries, while Virginia was all agriculture, with but a single crop. A homogeneous society and a democratic spirit, while her rival was an aristocracy. Virginian society was distinctively stratified. On the lowest level were the Negro slaves, nearly as numerous as all the rest together. Next, the indented servants and the poor whites, of low origin, good-humoured, but boisterous, and sometimes vicious. Next, the small and despised class of tradesmen and mechanics. Next, the farmers and lesser planters, who were mainly of good English stock, and who merged insensibly into the ruling class of the great landowners it was these last who represented the colony and made the laws they may be described as english country squires transplanted to a warm climate and turned slave-masters they sustained their position by entails and constantly undermined it by the reckless profusion which ruined them at last many of them were well born with an immense pride of descent increased by the habit of domination indolent and energetic by turns rich in natural gifts and often poor in book learning though some in the lack of good teaching at home had been bred in the English universities, high-spirited, generous to a fault, keeping open house in their capacious mansions, among vast tobacco-fields and toiling negroes, and living in a rude pomp where the fashions of St. James were somewhat oddly grafted onto the roughness of the plantation. What they wanted in schooling was supplied by an education which books alone would have been impotent to give. The education which came with the possession and exercise of political power, and the sense of a position to maintain, joined to a bold spirit of independence and a patriotic attachment to the old dominion. They were few in number. They raced, gambled, drank, and swore. They did everything that in Puritan eyes was reprehensible, and in the day of need they gave the united colonies a body of statesmen and orators, which had no equal on the continent. A vigorous aristocracy favors the growth of personal eminence, even in those who are not of it, but only near it. The essential antagonism of Virginia and New England was afterwards to become, and to remain for a century, an element of the first influence in American history. Each might have learned much from the other, but neither did so till, at last, the strife of their contending principles shook the continent. Pennsylvania differed widely from both. She was a conglomerate of creeds and races, English, Irish, Germans, Dutch, and Swedes, Quakers, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Romanists, Moravians, and a variety of nondescript sects. The Quakers prevailed in the eastern district, quiet industrious virtuous and serenely obstinate the germans were strongest towards the centre of the colony and were chiefly peasants successful farmers but dull ignorant and superstitious towards the west were the irish of whom some were celts always quarrelling with their german neighbours who detested them but the greater part were protestants of scotch descent from ulster a vigorous border population virginia and new england had each a strong distinctive character pennsylvania with her heterogeneous population had none but that which she owed to the sober neutral tints of quaker existence a more thriving colony there was not on the continent life if monotonous was smooth and contented trade and the arts grew philadelphia next to boston was the largest town in british america and was moreover the intellectual center of the middle and southern colonies unfortunately for her credit in the approaching war the Quaker influence made Pennsylvania non-combatant. Politically, too, she was an anomaly, for though utterly unfeudal in disposition and character, she was under feudal superiors in the persons of the representatives of William Penn, the original grantee. New York had not as yet reached the relative prominence which her geographical position and inherent strength afterwards gave her the english joined to the dutch the original settlers were the dominant population but a half score of other languages were spoken in the province the chief among them being that of the huguenot french in the southern parts and that of the germans on the mohawk in religion the province was divided between the anglican church with government support and popular dislike and numerous dissenting sects chiefly lutherans independents presbyterians and members of the dutch reformed church the little city of new york like its great successor was the most cosmopolitan place on the continent and probably the gayest it had in abundance balls concerts theatricals and evening clubs with plentiful dances and other amusements for the poorer classes thither in the winter months came the great hereditary proprietors on the hudson for the old dutch feudality still held its own and the manners of van Rensselaer, Cortland, and Livingstone, with their seigneurial privileges and the great estates and numerous tenantry of the Schuylers and other leading families, formed the basis of an aristocracy, some of whose members had done good service to the province, and were destined to do more. Pennsylvania was feudal in form and not in spirit, Virginia in spirit and not in form, New England in neither, and New York largely in both. This social crystallization had, it is true, many opponents. In politics, as in religion, there were sharp antagonisms and frequent quarrels. They centred in the city, for in the well-stocked dwellings of the Dutch farmers along the Hudson there reigned a tranquil and prosperous routine, and the Dutch border-town of Albany had not its like in America for unruffled conservatism and quaint picturesqueness. Of the other colonies the briefest mention will suffice new jersey with its wholesome population of farmers tobacco growing maryland which but for its proprietary government and numerous roman catholics might pass for another virginia inferior in growth and less decisive in features delaware a modest appendage of pennsylvania wild and rude north carolina and farther on South Carolina and Georgia, too remote from the seat of war to take a noteworthy part in it. The attitude of these various colonies towards each other is hardly conceivable to an American of the present time. They had no political tie except a common allegiance to the British crown. Communication between them was difficult and slow, by rough roads traced often through primeval forests between some of them there was less of sympathy than of jealousy kindled by conflicting interests or perpetual disputes concerning boundaries the patriotism of the colonist was bounded by the lines of his government except in the compact and kindred colonies of new england which were socially united, though politically distinct. The country of the New Yorker was New York, and the country of the Virginian was Virginia. The New England colonies had once confederated, but kindred as they were, they had long ago dropped apart. William Penn proposed a plan of colonial union wholly fruitless, James the Second tried to unite all the northern colonies under one government, but the attempt came to naught. Each stood aloof, jealously independent. At rare intervals, under the pressure of an emergency, some of them would try to act in concert, and except in New England the results had been most discouraging nor was it this segregation only that unfitted them for war they were all subject to popular legislatures through whom alone money and men could be raised and these elective bodies were sometimes factious and selfish and not always either far-sighted or reasonable Moreover, they were in a state of ceaseless friction with their governors, who represented the king, or what was worse, the feudal proprietary. These disputes, though varying in intensity, were found everywhere except in the two small colonies which chose their own governors, AND THEY WERE PREMONITIONS OF THE MOVEMENT TOWARDS INDEPENDENCE WHICH ENDED IN THE WAR OF REVOLUTION. THE OCCASION OF DIFFERENCE MATTERED LITTLE. ACTIVE OR LATENT, THE QUARREL WAS ALWAYS PRESENT. IN NEW YORK IT TURNED ON A QUESTION OF THE GOVERNOR'S SALARY. IN PENNSYLVANIA, ON THE TAXATION OF THE PROPRIETARY ESTATES in virginia on a fee exacted for the issue of land patents it was sure to arise whenever some public crisis gave the representative of the people an opportunity of extorting concessions from the representative of the crown or gave the representative of the crown an opportunity to gain a point for prerogative that is to say the time when action was most needed was the time chosen for obstructing it in canada there was no popular legislature to embarrass the central power the people like an army obeyed the word of command a military advantage beyond all price divided in government divided in origin feelings and principles jealous of each other jealous of the crown the people at war with the executive, and by the fermentation of internal politics, blinded by an outward danger that seemed remote and vague, such were the conditions under which the British colonies drifted into a war that was to decide the fate of the continent. The war was the strife of a united and concentred few against a divided and discordant many. It was the strife, too, of the past against the future, of the old against the new, of moral and intellectual torpor against moral and intellectual life, of barren absolutism against a liberty crude, incoherent and chaotic, yet full of prolific vitality. End of section three.